And as you sit, uh, let me encourage you to uh, get hold of a Bible and to turn back to uh, the second of those two readings that Fred uh, read for us just now, page 968, Matthew uh, chapter 5. You might also find it useful uh, to dig out the handout that's been tucked inside uh, your service order. Um, as uh, you'll see from the front of that, that we continue in this uh, series looking through uh, the Beatitudes one at a time. And this time we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That is our big word tonight, righteousness. And let me pray for us as we turn to this. We've sung, Heavenly Father, that you would revive us. We pray that you would indeed revive us uh, in many ways, but not least of all this evening, to bring our lives in line with your great purposes for your world. May we be passionate for that and live our lives wholeheartedly with you for your great purposes and for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. We have, uh, I think, uh, most of us enjoyed the One Big Question uh, campaign, if I can call it that. It's been, I think, a terrific initiative in many ways, not just because of all that happened uh, last Sunday and the week before that, but because through this survey we know what questions people are asking. That is invaluable. And maybe unsurprisingly, one of the top issues was that of uh, injustice, of inequality, of living in a wicked world. It all came under the, the big subject that we looked at last week, Uh, the subject of why is there so much sadness in our world. Uh, Inequality and injustice, it seems, bothers people. Uh, We think today, uh, on this Remembrance Sunday, of the oppression and injustice that people have fought to overcome and of the injustices that have happened during times of conflict. It bothers us to see that happening. I don't need to tell you that our news has been dominated for a very long time by the economic struggles of the recession. It is a complex issue that I don't begin to understand. Uh, but any discussion of the economic crisis inevitably includes the banks, uh, both in terms of how we got into this situation in the first place and how we might come out of it if the banks are willing to lend money to kickstart the economy. And the banks and the money they are making and the bonuses they are paying out is a major reason for the protest outside St Paul's Cathedral. Inequality bothers us. And the great problem of inequality in our world, the justice that is rife in our world, it all bothers us. It's all part of the unrighteousness of our world. It's there in the city, it's right through our society, it's rife in our world. It always has been even when there's been an attempt to get rid of it. And I don't mean by that a a camp outside St Paul's Cathedral. I went to Moscow in the summer of 1989 with a Christian organisation to try and tell the gospel um, to English-speaking Russian students. Uh, The whole trip was an incredible eye-opener for me. These were the early days of perestroika and glasnost. Remember those words? uh, Openness, freedom of speech, free trade, that sort of thing. But the shops in Moscow were empty. The shelves were bare. It was a picture, I think, of the failings of communism. As I spoke to ordinary Russian people, they all had the same story. They had very little. And as I met with them, many of them were angry with their leaders. The top people at the top of the Communist Party enjoyed lives of privilege and luxury. So much for a classless system structured upon common ownership. The communist ideology of equality and and even wealth distribution had been left wanting. Great injustice bothers us. 
It is all another aspect of the dark world that we live in. Now look back with me to Matthew chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16, verses that have set the scene for understanding the teaching of Jesus in the Beatitudes. See, quoting Isaiah the prophet, Matthew writes in verse 15, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, the people of Isaiah's day were facing, as we've seen each week, the frightening prospect of being overrun by the mightiest Syrian army. The world superpower of the day was bearing down upon them. To them, the world seemed very dark, just as it would have done in Europe all those years ago when the First and, and Second World Wars began. It must have been very dark and very frightening. Well, look, the darkness of death, verse 16, had cast its shadow over the tiny nation of Israel. And not only death, in Isaiah's day, they feared the very real possibility of being taken into captivity, carted off into exile to be slaves of the Assyrians in a foreign land. Isaiah was writing into a world that knew all about injustice and a world that that seriously feared oppression. And God spoke to them through the prophet Isaiah and promised, verse 16, that those living in darkness would see a great light. A light so strong it could chase away even the shadow of death. And here Matthew is saying that promised light is Jesus. That's why Matthew quotes these verses at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that is why Jesus went and lived in Capernaum. Look back to verse 12 of Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Do you see the point? Jesus lived in Capernaum to show that he is the great light of the world that is promised here. He is the light that can overcome the darkness of death. And if you look on to verse 17, he is the light that can bring in the kingdom of heaven. And it is heaven's kingdom alone where we will see the darkness finally dealt with. Uh, Just, uh, if you will, maybe keep uh, something, your service order or something in Matthew chapter 5 and turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 9, page 693, the the first of the two readings that Fred uh, read for us. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2, when you get there, you'll see are the words that Matthew quotes. Uh, But as with, uh, often with Old Testament prophecies that are quoted, uh, it's the whole of the section that Matthew wants us to take note of. Uh, Look on to verses 6 and 7 and see what this prophecy promises. Uh, See how the darkness will be chased away. You see, uh, God promises in verse 6 that a a child will be born. Um, This child we know is Jesus because we've just read Matthew's Gospel. Uh, But you see what God promises in verse 7 through this one, everlasting peace in the kingdom of his Son, peace that does not end. Because, verse 7, Jesus will reign as the unrivaled and perfect king. He will reign on David's throne. And in his kingdom, verse 7, notice this word, he will establish justice and righteousness forever and here's the thing about this promise yes the Israelites were in fear of oppression from the mighty Assyrians but that wasn't the whole story 
The Israelites themselves were guilty of oppression and social injustice. Here they were, about to be potentially overrun and and to be terrified by this oppression. And yet they'd been just as guilty of it themselves in their own lives. Great hypocrisy. Let's see, turn back with me to chapter 1 of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 5 of the book of Isaiah are a horror story. They tell us that God's own people were living thoroughly ungodly lives. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Here is God speaking to his own people through, um, uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And the Lord says, chapter 1, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. This is talking to Israel. God's own people. Then flip over a page to chapter 1, verse 17, uh, 16 and 17. The Lord says to his people, verse 16, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. They weren't concerned for justice. That's why I had to say it. They weren't concerned about oppression. Or for the cause of the disadvantaged or the marginalised, the, the widows here, the fatherless. And then look what he says of Jerusalem, uh, the great city of God, or so it should have been. Verse 21 of chapter 1. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. It's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They don't defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. It makes for horrible reading and it continues virtually on for the whole of five chapters, the first five chapters of the book. Israel, this is the point, Israel in Isaiah's day was a dark world. And not only because of the external threat of the Assyrians, theirs was a dark world because of their own sin, their own rebellion against God, their own failure to be about the great purposes of God. They were thoroughly sinful and they had no real concern for righteousness. And you see, as we turn back to Matthew chapter 5, it was exactly the same in Jesus' day. Do you remember, Israel in Jesus' day was oppressed by the occupying force, the Romans. These were dark days for Israel. They were overrun by a foreign army. Do you see the parallel with with Isaiah's day? But here's the other parallel. That wasn't the only darkness in Israel. Just as in Isaiah's day, theirs was a dark world because of their own unrighteousness, their own sin, their own rebellion against God, their own failure to be about the great purposes of God. So look what Jesus says about the religious leaders of his day. Chapter 5, verse 20. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I know when we read the Pharisees, we know they're the baddies and we all kind of you know, want to do that sort of uh, that pantomime thing of saying boo when they walk onto the... But you see, they were perhaps the most ethically moral 
group of the day. The Pharisees were the goodies in many ways, yet look, they are falling woefully short. They weren't living as they should. And here's the thing, here's the thing, they had no desire for the purposes of God. And that was seen in the way they treated the great light when he came into the world. Here is God's great purpose, sending the light of the world into the world. And the Pharisees wanted to get rid of him. They plotted to kill him. They, just like the people of Isaiah's day, campaigned against the oppression and injustice in Israel caused by the Romans, but they weren't living it themselves. God had a great purpose for his world, which Isaiah chapter 9 tells us is entirely bound up with his son, Jesus Christ. His purpose to establish his kingdom through the death and resurrection of his son, to usher in his kingdom, a kingdom of peace, not war, a kingdom that would be established with justice and righteousness, a kingdom that would last forever. That's God's purpose for his world. But in Jesus' day, God's people weren't aligning themselves with God's great answer to the problem of unrighteousness. They weren't aligning themselves with Jesus. Quite the opposite, they hated him. And that is what we see today. Even people who campaign for justice and seek to end oppression and equality are guilty. Guilty in the same way that God's people were back then. Guilty of turning away from the light of the world. Turning against the only one who can bring justice and righteousness. The one who actually is righteousness. And sadly it's not so different in the church. So Kent Hughes in this book writes, The tragedy of our time is that the world is hungering and thirsting after sex, wealth and violence and excitement and the church's tragedy is that many in her are seeking the same thing and their diets are making them as empty and pathetic as the world. See, here's the problem with this dark world. Even when we say we want justice and when we speak against oppression, we're full of hypocrisy, happy to live with unrighteousness in our own lives. But Jesus wants a people for himself who are different, a people, to use the words from the passage we were looking at this morning in Titus, a people eager to do what is good. We should be a people who, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, as we've seen over these past weeks, the Beatitudes are taught to Jesus' disciples. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, Now, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples said to him and uh, came to him and he began to teach them. This teaching is for his disciples. And the Beatitudes are Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. We've seen this each week, but I think it bears repeating. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so everything in between is a kingdom of heaven sandwich. It's all about being in, living in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus' disciples should, verse 6, hunger and thirst for righteousness. We should want righteousness because Jesus is for righteousness. We should long for righteousness because as we saw in Isaiah chapter 9, God's kingdom will be established with justice and righteousness. And righteousness, this is the key point, righteousness is about aligning myself to the great purposes of God. Verse 6 are very powerful words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. My guess would be that very few of us, if any of us here, know what it is to really hunger and thirst. And so most of us this evening don't feel the intensity of Jesus' words because we're not in danger of dehydration or starvation. I certainly don't know that. Uh, The closest I ever got to real hunger was doing a 24-hour sponsored fast when I was a teenager. I felt very hungry at the end, but it was only 24 hours. Nothing compared to those who lived through famine or drought. So no, most of us won't have experienced hunger at that level, but we can still begin to know the great power of hunger and thirst, can't we? Miss just one meal in an active day and we've probably sat down at the table saying, I'm starving, I'm famished. Take a long hike on a summer's day and we're likely to stagger home telling everyone we're we're dying of thirst. It's a bit extreme, that's what we say, isn't it? When we were um, at uh, Disney in Florida earlier this year, it was very hot, in the 90s every day. And one day we ran out of bottles of water and although there were great sights to see and great fun to have, at that moment I wasn't interested in everything that was going on around me until I'd found a water fountain or a shop selling bottled water. Everything else was blocked out. That's what thirst does for you. It makes you single-minded for water. See, hunger and thirst are very powerful driving forces. When you're really hungry and really thirsty, you forget everything else. So disciples of Jesus should have a single-minded intensity for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. It's a huge challenge to me as I look at this world. Am I, am I bothered by it? Really bothered by it? Hungry and thirst bothered? Hungry for justice? Thirsty for the end of oppression? Hungry for God's kingdom to come? Thirsty for his will to be done? It's a great challenge for us who call ourselves evangelicals. One writer suggested genuine concern for righteousness is in, the decli- is in decline in the evangelical church. Uh, Kent Hughes, again in this book, uh, maybe shed some light on why that is. Uh, looking at our leisure activities, he says our, our leisure activities mitigate against, against a desperate desire for righteousness. He writes these words, Many watch more word murders and adulteries on television in one week than their grandparents read about in a lifetime And with no twinge of conscience, their casual viewing is a tacit approval of evil, he says. Now, whether whether or not our television viewing is an implicit approval of evil, I'm not sure. But Kent Hughes' comment certainly reveals how our TV habits dull us to the horror of evil. We see it so often, we get used to it. We accept that's the way it is. But we should be like Jesus. We should be thirsty to see righteousness rule. John Stott, writing on the Beatitudes and seeing how they fit together, says, it's not enough to mourn over past sin, which we looked at a few weeks ago. It's not enough to mourn over past sin. We must also hunger for future righteousness. But here's the big thing. Jesus is not telling us to simply work hard for social justice and campaign against oppression. You see, to be righteous is to align ourselves with the will of God. It is to see that Jesus is, going back to chapter 4, verse 16, the only light who can chase away the darkness. Jesus is righteousness. He's the only one who's going to deal with unrighteousness. To be righteous, then, is to have a longing to be caught up in the plans and purposes of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it really is crucial that we get this right. See, we will never see ethical or moral righteousness in this life, in this world. 
The coming of the kingdom of God is the only way we'll see righteousness established. Yes, when we see wickedness and oppression and injustice in our world, yes, we should work for ethical righteousness. But we must be clear that ethical, moral righteousness will only be finally realised and known in the new creation. Something we were looking at a couple of weeks ago. That's why the gospel must always be our priority. The Australian preacher, Philip Jensen, puts it like this. There's too much dirt in the room and there's nowhere to sweep it out. So all we can do at best is sweep it from one corner of the room to another. He says you can sweep the dirt into corners, it makes the rest of the world more pleasant. So as much as you can, sweep it into corners. But in the end, you're not going to get rid of it until the whole house is pulled down and a new house is built in its place. So yes, wherever you can, strike a blow for ethical righteousness. But we must always, we must always be on the side of righteousness. 4 verse 6, we are people who should long for it. But a terrible disillusionment will come upon you as it will come upon anyone who works for social change if you think you'll be able to achieve righteousness in this world. That's just not possible. Because this world is made up of people, each and every one of whom is unrighteous. There are millions of us, actually billions of us. About ten days ago, when a baby was born somewhere in the world, the world's population reached seven billion. That's seven billion of us contributing more and more dirt We produce the dirt faster than anyone can sweep, you see. There's no way we're going to have a righteous world unless the whole thing is done away with and a whole new start commences. That's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we need to be about. That's what this beatitude is about. It's about seeing God's kingdom come as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. For there's only one way I have a chance of living a righteous life here and now and that is if my heart is changed by the Spirit of God. There have been wonderful times, wonderful periods um, that we call times of revival when God's Spirit has been poured out and a whole lot of people's hearts have been changed in one area. When that has happened, we've seen whole communities go through change and transformation. I think it was 100 years ago. I hope I've got my century right. I don't think it was 200 years ago. 100 years ago during the Welsh Revival. Was that 100 years ago or 200? Yeah, 100 years ago during the Welsh Revival when uh, 100,000 people became Christians. 100,000 in Wales. Not a very big country. 100,000 people became Christians. You know, the crime rate dropped so significantly that the police force had virtually nothing to do. And so they formed a Welsh male voice choir. <laughs> Didn't have anything else to do. So they went singing all around the country. Society was changed. But that sort of social change comes out of people change, not structure change. And that's why God's purposes are completely bound up with the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way we'll see change. Let me explain. You see, change the tax laws all you like and there'll still be tax cheats. But change the tax cheats and they'll not cheat on their taxes anymore. At least they shouldn't, because Christians are people who have a heart change. And when my heart has been changed, not only will I not cheat on my taxes, but I'll have a desire to be generous with my money in the community rather than stingy and grabbing. Imagine if you had everybody in the community wanting to give money to the community good. 
the kind of tax laws you'd need would be very different, wouldn't they? And as we start to give our money away and don't cheat people out of money, do you see how the world changes? That's how the world is changed. Heart change. But the, polit- but the politicians don't get it. They think if we could just change the law, change the rules, educate people, somehow people would play clean. It won't work. Change all the structures you like. Dirty people still play dirty. They'll just find new ways to get around the rules. But change people. And that's what God's about. That's what this beatitude is about. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is not just about campaigning for justice. Those in the kingdom of God who hunger and thirst after righteousness are those who align themselves to the purposes of God. What are his purposes? We've seen it. He sent Jesus, the great light. So our purposes are to be in his purposes. That is to preach the gospel of Jesus. That's righteousness. And that in turn brings ethical righteousness as people are changed. But not the other way around. We should be passionate for that. And when we are, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, well then, verse 6, we will be filled. We will be filled one day in the future when God ushers in his kingdom and his son rules with justice and righteousness. And we will be fulfilled now by knowing we are living our lives in line with the great purpose of God for his world. Number two question from our one big question thing was what's life all about here it is no wonder people are walking around wondering what life's all about because they're living for something else here's what it's all about it's about bringing your life in line with the great purposes of God that really counts because you know eventually it's going to happen We should then be concerned for the great injustices in this world. Yes, we should. We should have sympathy with the message of those camped outside St Paul's Cathedral. I was struck by the words of CSM Director Andy Flanagan. He said, we don't have to sign up to the protesters' complete agenda to engage with what they're talking about. I think that's a helpful point. I might add, we don't have to agree with their actions to engage with what they're talking about. But with a concern for righteousness, what Christians should be doing is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should perhaps be standing on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral and talking to those camped outside the cathedral about the one who is the light, the light in a dark world. Talking to them about the one who alone can bring about a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. We should tell them of a wonderful kingdom to come. Telling them, actually, of the world they want. A world where there will be no injustice or oppression. Where the widows and the fatherless will be cared for by their father and their husband, Jesus. And we should be telling them how it will come about and how they can come into that kingdom through the death of Jesus Christ. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we should be doing that with all the intensity and single-mindedness of the hungry and the thirsty. So how about it? Should we start doing it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray together.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we rejoice today in Jesus. The one who alone will bring in your kingdom. The one who will usher in a kingdom of righteousness and justice. Jesus, the one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Make us more like him, we pray. And because we so love him and so love what you're about, give us a desire, a a hunger, a thirst to proclaim the gospel. The gospel that is light in a dark world. The gospel light that chases away the darkness of death. The light that we know will win, doing away with all darkness. Help us to be so hungry for those things that we see nothing else as really important. And help us to work hard, to make a blow for righteousness whenever we can, and to be living our lives with that one purpose, the same purpose that is your purpose, to see your will be done and your kingdom come. 